I'm going to endeavor to give you some words in line with what Pastor Bert's been teaching the last few weeks about the vision for our house. This is our house, it's God's house. You know, every, every church is just a building until God's people come in and fellowship with Him. That's when it becomes God's house. Um, I'm in this building more than most of y'all, and when there isn't ministry going on in this building, it's kind of lonely. <laughs> it's kind of empty. And on a non-church day, when I come into this sanctuary, it's just so big and so empty that sometimes it makes me feel empty, and I would like to have all of you here at that time. So, the title of my message tonight is Putting God's, the House of God First. And Pastor Bert's been speaking along these lines, and the vision for this house, God's house, all churches are God's house if it has God's people in it. But our vision is for this particular house of God. So, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If not, you can see it on the screen, I'm sure. Um, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Now, the house of God in Greek is, is the word oikos. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's the way it looks to me. O-I-K-O-S, oikos. His dwelling place, which is the church. And the church is you, if, God is, if Jesus is in your heart, the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are God's house. You, me, us, all of us together are God's house. In the, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1. I have a lot of scripture for you tonight, so I'm going to be talking more scripture than my words. So follow along if you will. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 19, and this is, a, this is a, a text that we, a lot of us, confess all the time. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. So, Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power, God's power, which He, God, worked in Christ, whom He raised from the dead and seated Him, Jesus, at His God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, in might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in not only in this age, but also in the age it is to come. And he put all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave him Jesus to be the head over all things in the church, to which which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, um, 
this concept of us being the body of Christ is a really important concept to understand if you're going to operate in God's principles. Because without that understanding, we don't really believe in the authority that we have in Christ. We don't really believe in the righteousness that we have in Christ. We have to know that we are His and that He lives in us. Does that make sense? Okay. The church which is His body, you, me, us, together we make up the body of Christ. The church which is His body. The house, God's house, is connected to God by the people who dwell there. As I said before, unless God's people are here, this is just an empty building. Doesn't have much meaning at all. Maybe it looks pretty and all that, you know, but, and it's, you know, we can have weddings here and things like that, but that's not the primary purpose of this building. The primary purpose of this building is to house God's church, which is us. That's its primary purpose. And um, 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Chronicles 7, 16 says, For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And you've heard Pastor Bert uh, speak to that passage many times. I don't know about you, but it's kind of humbling to me when I think about when we gather here, God's eyes are on us. God's heart is in us. God's heart is with us. That's pretty humbling, I think. It is to me. Uh, and I used to, you know, I used to think that I felt kind of small when I thought about that. But I don't think that's the way God wants us to think of ourselves. I don't think he wants, to think of, wants us to think of ourselves like that at all. We are Christ in the world. He's not down here in flesh and blood body anymore like he was. But he's here in us. And Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because of what he did for us. So... Because we are, we have all the rights and privileges and all the power that Jesus has a right to. We're joint heirs with Jesus, the Bible says. So we have the authority that we need. So I don't think he wants to think of us to think of ourselves as little people, little powerless, ineffective people. I think he wants us to rise up and be his children. Praise God. God will never abandon his church if it's consecrated to him. And this whole thing demonstrates God's love for his church. You know, all these scriptures that we're reading and will read in this whole message. Just a little, little rabbit trail here. When I come with a message, I, I come prepared, or hopefully prepared, but I never know how long it's going to last. So we may, this may be 30 minutes or it may be an hour and a half. Are you all ready to stay an hour and a half? <laughs> I don't think you have to worry about that. Um, 
about, about a year and a half ago, Pastor John Holler was here as a guest speaker, and he spoke to us about five reasons that God loves his church. And I'm just going to go reiterate those five things that he talked about just to, if, if you were here, maybe you've heard these before, but even if you have, our minds need to be refreshed, don't they? So bear with me while I go through these. If you heard them before, this will just reinforce what you heard. The first one is, it is because it is his body. As mentioned earlier, his family, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And it's how he adds to his family. That's the first reason that he loves us so much, his church so much. You know, people can watch um, television, they can watch the news, they can watch movies, they can do all kinds of things, they can have fellowship with, with other groups, they can belong to the lions or the moose or the elks, or I don't know why they name them always animals, do you? Anyway, they can belong to all those, but they're not going to get what they get in the church. And they're not going to be added to his family in those meetings. This is the place where God adds to his church. Acts 16, chapter 4. Sixteen four and 5, excuse me. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. But wouldn't it be nice if we could add Christians to our church every day? You know, back in that time, they had church every day. They did. They had church every day. They preached every day. And they preached all day long. Pretty awesome, huh? I don't know how they made a living, but, you know, that's what they did. And they added to the church every day. Number two. His church is where people are trained and discipled. It is where we learn what the Bible says and how we apply it to our lives and where we connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that, that whole passage is important, but I, I want to focus on that part where we gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it's a fact that we are influenced, all of us are influenced by the people that we're around. There's a proverb that says, bad company corrupts good morals. Well, the converse of that is true, too. Good company builds up good morals. So it's important for us to be around brothers and sisters in Christ on a regular basis. I don't know about you, but when I see somebody coming in that I, that I know and that I, that I love, it cheers me up. I get a smile on my face, and, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And then when I come in here and sit under Pastor Burt's anointed teaching and fellowship with other Christians at the same time, that's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's the second reason God loves his church. <clears throat> Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe if in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Um, you might not think of Pastor Burke being sent when he comes up to the podium here and he preaches to us. Well, he is sent. He's sent. He's called to do what he's doing. Believe me, if God hadn't called him to be a preacher, he could be in the business world and be making a ton of money. He's that smart and he's that, uh, he's that uh, effective. He's that harder worker, hardest worker I know. But he is sent. He's sent by God, but he's also sent by us. <clears throat> and there's another point about them being trained and discipled in his church. And that is that, you know, you can, you can listen to Christian radio. You can watch Christian TV. You can listen to anointed preaching. But it's not the same. It just is not the same as being around your brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I heard a, a statistic uh, one day last week that physical churches are becoming an anachronism. There is so much digital things available to people, especially the younger generations, that they don't bother to go to church. They have their church in their living room or in their car or on their phone or wherever. And I don't deny that that's, that's a good thing. But here again, for an hour on Wednesday and for an hour and a half on Sunday, it's beneficial to actually be in the physical church and actually be around brothers and sisters in Christ. There isn't any substitute for it. If you try to substitute it, substitute all that digital stuff for it only, that digital stuff should be an addition to what you get in, in, the, in God's church. Oh, it's getting on the soapbox now. Number three. His church is the epicenter of faith in the earth. Where else on earth can you learn about faith, the God kind of faith? Again, we can hear about it on the news, I mean on the uh, uh, radio, we can watch it on television and all that kind of thing. But it isn't the same as sharing it with another brother and sister in Christ. You know, when you're, when you're sitting next to people that you love and, and honor, you know, like Isabel and, and Victoria sitting here together, they kind of rub arms every once in a while, you know. And every once in a while, when I'm here with my wife, you know, we'll hear something really good and we'll have to say something to each other about it. That's part of the whole process. And again, there is no substitute for that. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we, we who are here all the time, we hear those phrases, those scriptures all the time. And the reason we do is because they are true. And they need to be repeated to get into our spirits 
so that we know and understand them. There are a lot of times when we have to speak to ourselves in Scripture. My wife is very good about that. And we speak to each other in Scripture. It's important for us to understand that the God kind of faith is not a feeling. Although you can have feelings with it, but faith itself is not a feeling. Faith is an action. James says that faith without action is dead. And remember Abraham and his faith when he offered, was getting ready to offer his son as a living sacrifice, a burnt offering to God. Because he believed that even if that happened, God would keep his promise to make him the father of many nations. And because of his action, it demonstrated his faith and solidified his faith. And God saved his son. Gave him the sacrifice. Number four. The church is where God's people give testimonies. I don't know about you all, but a while back we had some video testimonies up here on the screen. Uh, they were dynamite. They were really good. And I know that builds me up. And I'm sure that I'm not by myself in that. I'm sure everybody that heard those was built up by it. And typically, whenever we have, uh, whenever someone's doing an offering message, they give a testimony of how it has enhanced their lives in different ways. Those testimonies are priceless. And we need to hear them. And you won't hear them anywhere else. At least not from people you know. Number five. God loves the church because of the price that he paid was so great. God gave his only son, whom he loved beyond, well, far beyond our comprehension. We can't even begin to conceive the love that he had for his son. And he had to watch him in his obedience give himself up on that cross to be beaten and whipped, his beard pulled out of his face and out of his, his hair pulled out of his head. How many of you here have watched the movie The Passion? Almost everybody. That's great because it's a really good movie, but I believe that it doesn't begin to really demonstrate what Jesus went through on that cross. The word says that he was unrecognizable. He was beaten so badly and mutilated so badly that you couldn't even recognize that he was Jesus. And his father had to watch all that. Because there was a plan, and Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, even to death. 
And I believe that one reason that he was obedient was because he knew that he was going to, God was going to do what he said he was going to do, and he was going to raise him on the third day, which we all know that he did. That's an act of obedience that I can't even imagine. And Jesus did it not only for the love of the Father, but for the love of every one of us. He loves us. He loves us. Let's look at 1 John 4.19. We have God, John 4, 1 John 4.19 says that we love God because He first loved us. And you know, sometimes I just like to sit and reflect on all the blessings that I've received in my life, none of which I deserve. He gave me a beautiful wife and two wonderful sons and two wonderful grandsons and all of their wives, and two great-grandchildren, and a warm house to live in in the winter, a cool house to live in in the summer, all the bills paid, and more than enough. And I... I do our, our balance our checkbook and all that at the end of every month when we get their statement. And I'm always amazed after I do that how much money we have left. <laughs> because in the natural, there's no way for us to live as well as we do on what our income is. It just isn't possible. And yet it happens every time because he loves us so much. Because he loves us, he's given us a lot of direction in his word on how we should live our lives and how we should interact with him. And he does that because he loves us and he knows that if we understand those things and we follow his directions, that we'll be blessed. There just isn't any doubt. If we do what he says to do, if we're obedient to his word, we'll be blessed. And typically, if we don't, we won't. That's kind of poetic, wasn't it? Matthew 6, verse 33, is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. In... Uh, I'm going to read it in the Amplified Version. But seek, aim, and strive after, first of all, His kingdom and His righteousness, which is His way of doing and being right. And then all these things taken together will be given to you besides. So if we seek God and His righteousness first, everything else that we need and everything else that we desire if they're within God's uh, 
what he's taught us, they'll be given to us. Seek God in his righteousness first, and everything you need or desire will be given to you. There are a lot of ways we could, can and should, should put God first, but really in every choice we make, we should be thinking, we should be asking ourselves, where is God in this choice? It sounds pretty trivial, but the Word says to pray without ceasing. In other words, we should be in constant communication with God. And when we're getting ready to make a decision, you know, uh, we need to think about where God is, is in it. And, you know, if we're praying without ceasing, and that doesn't mean that you always got to be have your head bowed and your eyes closed and your hands folded and, uh, dear Father God, and all that, you know. But it does mean that we need to be seeking His leadership all the time. We need to be fellowshipping with Him all the time. You know, God doesn't always want to hear us asking for things. He wants to hear our heart. He wants to hear how we feel about things. He wants to hear what we think about things. Because when we do that, that gives him the opportunity to speak into our spirit to correct the, the wrong thinking that we have sometimes. I know I have wrong thinking sometimes. I'm sure I'm not by myself. What we have to remember is that what we are today is the sum total or result of every choice that we've made in our lives. The sum total. There are some bad things and there are some good things. But like mathematics, you can plus something or you can minus something. And hopefully, if you're counting your money, hopefully when you're through minusing and plusing, you have some money left like we do at the end of the month. There was, a, there was a man, he's dead now, but a man named Stephen Covey who was an American educator, author, and motivational speaker. And he wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. His most famous quote was, Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. That sounds kind of trite, but if you think about it, it's true. It's absolute truism. We, we end up doing what we think about, right? When you're getting ready to do something, you think about it first, right? Now, feelings come in and all those other kind of things, but you first have to think about it. So when you're thinking about something that you're going to do, you need to think about what the end result of that thing is going to be. And those are the kinds of things that we learn in the physical church around other brothers and sisters in Christ. We learn how to do those things. The other thing that we need to remember is that while we're free to choose, God gave us all free will. 
we had the ability to choose. Yes, no, maybe, you know, all that. What we're not free to, do, to choose is the consequences of our choices. And every single choice has a consequence. Now, some of them might not show up right away, but there is a consequence, and it's going to happen. I'm running short of time here. Right now, I want to talk to you about money. And <laughs> in a lot of churches that I've attended, you couldn't talk about money. People would get all bent out of joint and say, well, they're just after our money. Well, well, I'll say a couple of things about that. First of all, church is a service. If you go to McDonald's and you order a hamburger, you're getting a service, and you're going to pay for it. Yeah, wherever you go, you're going to pay for the services that you get. And church, and what we receive from the church, is, in my estimation, beyond value. Just absolutely beyond value. So, we need to talk about money in the church. We need to know what God says about money in the church. And, and believe it or not, in the Bible, the Bible talks more about money than it does heaven or hell. The Bible talks more about money than it does love. It talks more about money than almost anything. So if it's that important to God that he put it so much in his word, I think it's pretty important for us to talk about it. Now, I've heard some people who have left this church, and I've heard more than one say that every service they got to talk about money. Every service they got to talk about tithes. Every service they got to talk about offerings. Yeah. Yeah. There's a good reason for that. We need to be educated about tithing and, and, and offerings. Because God thinks about tithes and offerings. And he looks at what we do with our money. So when we decide how we're going to spend our money, we need to have God's purposes behind it. And I'm not just talking about tithes and offerings. You know, if you, you might spend your money on some dumb thing, you know, and, and if it is, you're going to pay the consequences for it, but you're also going to make God sad. You know, He doesn't like it when you do things that hurt, your, that hurt you. And we can do more harm to ourselves with money almost than we can do good. So, I've got three scriptures here that I want to, I want to read to you, and I'm, I'm about to wind this up. Malachi 3, 10, 11, and most of you have heard this many, many times, but I want you to, I'm going to read it real slow, and I want you to really listen. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in a field. Now, most of us don't, don't have grapevines, and we don't 
we don't plant things. We're not, this is not an ag agrarian economy. But all of us do something to make money, to make, to make a gain, right? We do it with our services, or we do it with our investments, or we do it with uh, 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 products that we set, buy and sell. You know, there, there are myriad, myriad ways that we make money. So this applies to that. Remember, this was written for an agrarian economy. So this, they understood this in, in, the, in, in those days. But it still applies to us. We just have to understand that it applies to us in exactly the same way, even though we're using different uh, means. And then in Proverbs 11, verse 24, it says, There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but leads to poverty. The generous will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. And then 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 8 says, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is going to make all grace abound toward you. That you always, that you will always have all sufficiency in all things and may have an abundance for every good work. Now I could go on and on about money. And I could quote scripture after scripture after scripture. The Bible's full of, of, of quotations about money. But these should make the point. Some are from the Old Testament, some are from the New Testament. Should should make the point that God is very concerned about how we handle money. You know, you've you've heard the saying that money is the root of all evil. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. No, you, the Bible does say that. Is the root of all evil. But you, the way it's quoted is, money is all evil. And it isn't. Money is just a thing. You know, especially paper money, you know. I mean, it's just paper. But if the root of your money is greed or avarice or taking from somebody else or things like that, then that's evil. And God rejects that. But he loves a cheerful giver. So, when we're thinking about what we do with our money, God's house should be a priority. It should be a priority. First of all, the tithe is 10% of the fruit first of your income. That should be first before anything else. And it's not like paying a bill. You know, it's not that you got to, that you got to, like paying for your light bill or your rent or whatever. 
it's giving back to God what's already His because we really don't own anything. We're just stewards of what God has given to us. That's all we are. And He's given us all these things because He loves us. And when we do Matthew 6.33 and put Him first, He'll be sure to take care of us. Now, uh, Sandra's going to come and, and give you the, 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 the offering message in a few minutes. And not, but I, I want you to understand that what I'm telling you here is not an attempt to squeeze money out of you. We read before that God loves a cheerful giver and that you shouldn't give grudgingly or, or under duress. But what I'm doing is giving you the opportunity to understand how God feels about your money and how he feels about his church. And no church can survive without income. Can't. I hate to tell you what the electric bill is for this place. You have to have money. God's eyes and his heart are on his house, but only that it reflect his excellence. But that be a place of learning about Him through His Word, a place of peace, comfort, joy, fellowship, and safety. And I believe this house is that. We need to put God first by honoring His house. I don't know about you all, but I love this place. You know, the building's nice and all that kind of thing, and, you know, we're, we're pleased with it, but... What really is lovely about this place is, first of all, God's Word that emanates from it. And it does. I mean, all the time. We get good Word here. But secondly, because I love these people. They're wonderful. Well, some of them are kind of aggravating sometimes. But, but I love them anyway. Because I'm aggravating sometimes. That's my wife, she'll tell you. So, Father... We thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that we've gathered in your house.